What a great pleasure it is for me to be here uh, again this morning, and uh, thanks to James and Jennifer again. It's so inspiring, and I've known these people for over 20 years, still taking care of business, as you say, here in, in Memphis, and it's wonderful to come back to this congregation where I feel so at home, bittersweet in many ways, as I look out, memories of people who used to be here and are no longer here, thinking especially of Dr. Cruz, but thinking of the church on earth, the church in heaven is one church, uh, that we cannot see the great truth there, let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also. Thank you for your ministry to us. Uh, Ed has been involved in the UK partnership. It's your ministry, and uh, you have been blessed, the church in Scotland, my denomination, the Free Church, and thank you. We're seeing church plants growing in places like Winchborough, in Edinburgh, in Haddington, and various other places. And so, thank you for your support. Uh, keep informed of the UK partnership. Ed and I will be going to Charlotte uh, this week. So, again, thank you. Great to be here this weekend. Um, I watched the game last night. Ole Miss, Texas A&M. Um, quite a good game. Do you know that Ole Miss is the first college football team ever to have flown to a game? 1937, they flew to Philadelphia. They're still flying. And for those of you who have orange-tinted spectacles, there is hope. Do not give up. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our gracious Father, we thank You as we gather together for all that You have given to us. We thank You for the ministry of this congregation over many years, and we ask that You would continue to be with it that they would know uh, anointing, that they would know a sense of revival, a whiff of Your Holy Spirit. We acknowledge that only You can make the dry bones live. We pray for this great nation of the United States of America, that truly it would be the home of the brave and the land of the free, that those who are free in Christ are free indeed. Lord, forgive us as nations. We think of the whole Western world in these dark days of wars and rumors of war. We pray for the downfall of evil men, and we ask, Lord, that you would turn us again to you. Bless us in all that we say and do. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Can you uh, open your Bibles, please, in John's Gospel, John chapter 15? I do hope you can understand my accent. Of course, you don't have an accent, so uh, <laughs> it's no bother for me. John chapter 15. I am the true vine and my Father is a vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit He takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit He prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. 
Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples." As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed to you that you should go and bear fruit, and your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. The flowers fade, the grass withers, but the Word of God remains forever. Hear the Word of the Lord. Who was the first reformer? Well, there's lots of debates. Folks speak about the pre-reformers, the Lords, men like John Huss and John Wycliffe. And of course, others would say, well, you think of the magisterial reformers. Martin Luther must have been one of the first reformers. Well, he may have been the first reformers, but we all know here who the greatest reformer was. And we are talking, of course, of John Knox of Edinburgh, who was not afraid to fight against Mary, Queen of Scots, and that monstrous regiment of women. Uh, he wrote a book about it. I'm quoting Knox, not me. Uh, there's no monstrous regiment before me today. And so these are the reformers, the men who went to the med med medieval church and saw in all its weakness and brought reform to the church. The state of the medieval church was well known. I was reading a historian only on Friday, and he describes the church as, quote, illiterate parasites who only held their position due to family influence and favor. Illiterate parasites, I've not heard that 
description of anyone since I was at the Grove a few years ago, and they were talking about folk from LSU. It's a very unfortunate description. And then someone else spoke about the churches then, and they said that the church then was full of people who were intolerant to those who were seeking an honest spiritual experience. And so that's why the Reformation came. The Reformation came because the church was institutional. It was merely mechanistic. People went through a certain protocol. You had to pay to pray. It was really heavy duty, and it was not inspirational. The church in many ways in those days was corporate. It was cold. It was far away. And so we come to the first reformer, who was Jesus. And Jesus says, the church is not a corporation. He said, I am the true vine. And it's not just about being a member in a church. It's bigger than that. It is abiding in me. It is being united to me and living in me. And so Jesus here is reforming us and he is the first reformer. He is the ultimate reformer. And so often those of us who call ourselves reformed, it seems as if we are more interested in the Reformation than in Jesus. It seems that we are more interested in historical figures of the past than we are in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And so a Reformed church does not have Calvin as its toy boy. A Reformed church has Jesus as its hero, and in him we live, move, and we have our being. So John chapter 15, where are we? We are at the second of the upper room discourses. Judas has betrayed Jesus. Jesus is now going to prepare his people, his disciples, for life when he is going to go. And the hinge of the two uh, upper room discourses is in chapter 14 at the end. Rise, let us go from here. A leading Greek scholar, a man called C.H. Dodd, he was intrigued by that expression there in verse 31 of chapter 14. Uh, Rise, let us go from here. And he said that it should be translated let us go and and engage the advancing enemy. And so this passage is not something that's merely to be admired. We've to abide in Jesus, not simply to be comfortable. We've to abide in Jesus so that we too would be called to advance the engaging enemy. So what does the passage reveal? As we go through the first uh, um, 17 verses of of chapter 15, again, uh, you'll not be surprised, we notice three things. We're going to notice the true vine, first of all, and then we're going to notice the gardening father, and then we are going to notice the abiding branch, okay? The true vine, the gardening father, and the abiding branch. And number one, then, the true vine. Verse one, I am the true vine. What triggered it off? Well, Israel, the nation of Israel, was known as a vine. You see that in Deuteronomy 33. You see that in Psalm 80, that Israel was planted as a vine. 
Jesus would have been inspired, perhaps, by the vine in the front of the temple door, that ornamental vine. Maybe they were walking by and they saw the vines in the terraces of Jerusalem. Vineyards and vines were everywhere in the New Testament world. But it was a bittersweet image, because although Israel was called the vine, Israel had failed as a vine. God wanted the, the nation of Israel to plant and take root and be a light to the Gentiles. But instead of being a light to the Gentiles, Israel compromised and was darkness to the Gentiles. Instead of bringing glory to God, the nation of Israel went after other idols. And so when Jesus says, I am the true vine, he's saying to his people, no longer is your faith to be on the mere nation of Israel. Where they failed, I succeeded. Where the nation of Israel went wrong, I, I, I had success. And so there's this wonderful passage here. Israel finally rejected the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, I am the true vine. Everything that you, you wanted in Israel is, is found in me. I am everything you could ever need. And the wonderful thing about the Bible is the emphasis is on Jesus. And he is the hero of chapter 15. Remember that when you're reading the Bible. The Bible is not just some self-help book written to get us through life. That's one of the marks of the UK church that people are reading the Bible like some kind of Tony Robbins self-help manual to get them through the day. The hero is Jesus. He is the one who is spoken of here. And so the emphasis is in the missionary call. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. That's the language that we use in business, isn't it? We talk about branches. A company may have a branch in Memphis. It may have a branch in Nashville. <coughs> it may have a branch in Knoxville. Uh, I was going to say it may have a branch in, in Nebraska, but nobody lives in Nebraska. So, uh, uh, but it's got branches all over the place. And a branch looks exactly like the head office. It's got a corporate identity. And so this, this is a missionary thing here. When Jesus is saying the true vine, he's saying there, you are the branches. I want you to represent the vine all over the world. A big word today is brand. IPC have, have a brand that's very noticeable. The windows, uh, that's your, your symbol, isn't it? You, you see it in all your, your stuff there. The, the, the windows is a lovely thing. Whenever I see that, I think of the IPC brand. Beloved, your brand's not the windows. Your brand is not this church in Walnut Grove. Your brand is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your hero. And whenever anybody comes in here, they are under no mistake that what they will hear about is Jesus. And they will go away and they'll say that these people are obsessed. They're not obsessed about SEC football. They're not obsessed about the stock exchange. They're not obsessed about the markets. They are obsessed with Jesus. And if you 
push them at all, if you prick them, Jesus will, will come out, because that's their brand. And so, Jesus is saying there, you've got to look like the vine, act like the vine, produce the same fruit as the vine, that your DNA as a congregation is important, <clears throat> and that when you grow and people are replicated and they're converted, they're not clones of a person, they are replications of a vine. So, that's the first thing we see there, the true vine. The second thing we notice here is the gardening father, verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. That is the gardener. And it says there explicitly that the father is the gardener. And so, what does that mean? As a vine spreads, it's, it's got to be fruitful. That's the only purpose of a vine. What else does a vine do? I looked up Pinterest the other day, and I put in Pinterest what, you know, things to make with vine wood. And the list is not. It's not extensive. There's virtually nothing you can make with vine wood. It is almost useless. It's thin. It's strangly. One good old boy at the 8.30 said that when he was young, he used to smoke this stuff. <laughs> is there nothing they will not stoop to in Mississippi? <laughs> so, apart from smoking this stuff, there's not a lot you can do with a vine. The only thing a vine is useful for is reproducing. It's only good for grapes to produce fruit. And so, if we were to reduce this to one thing, one simple thing, uh, uh, fruitfulness is Christ-likeness. And so, when Jesus here in verse 2 is saying, bearing fruit, He's saying it again in verse 5. In, uh, here it is, it bears much fruit. Bearing fruit is found in every single verse almost. The question this morning is, how do we as people bear fruit? Jesus says there are three things that are going to happen before we bear fruit. Now, the first one is, He lifts us up. God lifts us up. Where do you find that? Look at verse 2. It says that every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. Huh. When I read that, I thought, wow, is Jesus really a Calvinist? Did he get this right? I mean, once saved, always saved, that's, that's what we mean. And yet it says in verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Oh. So, I dug deeper to see what it was actually meaning. And again, the Greek word there for takes away is the word aero, A-I-R-O, or aero, and it has a number of meanings. Most of them, get this, most of them do not mean takes away, but most of them mean to lift up, and that fits. And so, what Jesus is saying here is, every branch in me that does bear fruit, God lifts up. Stick with me here. 
If you've been to a vineyard, you'll see there's wiring. Okay, wires. And a vine trailing in the ground is no use. It gathers moss, it's trampled upon. It will not bear fruit. So what the, the, the gardener will do is he will lift or she will lift the vine up and put it over this trellis or, or, or this wire to enable it to grow. So for us to be Christ-like, God lifts us up. Let's unpack this a little bit more. What does this mean? The farmer lifts the vine up, and he's level with the vine, and the vine and him are intimate. They're together. But what does this mean? How can we apply this? And then a word of an old hymn came to me. Now, I'm 61, and I can hardly remember what what happened yesterday, but I can remember old hymns from 50 years ago. And an old hymn came to me, Lord, lift me up and let me stand by faith on Canaan's tableland, a higher plane than I have found. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. And that's exactly what God does. He plants our feet on higher ground, and at that higher ground, we get a vision of Him. We see Him as He is. And so, to be more Christ-like, we're not cut off. We're, we're, we're lifted up. However, although we are not cut off, bits of our lives are cut off. Look what it says. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Now, you all know about, about pruning. I've seen many of your houses and many of you, we call them gardens. You call them yards. And I've seen your lawns. I've seen your grass. And some of them are amazing. You must spend hours some of you have less than amazing ones, but that's another story. But what happens at the beginning of a season, you get a rake out, and you rake it and rake it and rake it, and sometimes the raking is so vigorous that when you remove all the debris, move all the dead grass, move all the moss, it looks as if there's nothing left, and it looks really severe the pruning, the raking process has been really catastrophic. And then the rain comes, and the lawn grows, and you think, wow. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying in verse 2. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Now, that's how we grow in Christ. Now, pruning's not nice. Hebrews 12, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, he says, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Last weekend, or two weekends ago, I was at a church weekend away in Scotland. My own church did the weekend away. And, and, and the speaker, he, he was excellent, one of our church planters, uh, Chris Davidson, young man, but he said this, the older I get, the more comfortable I am with God being a mystery. I like that. The more comfortable I am, 
The older I get, the more comfortable I am with God being a mystery. You have Jehovah's Witnesses here, just as we have in, in, the, in Scotland. I'm sure lovely people. But one of the things that really annoys me is they've got an answer for everything. They know the meaning of Daniel. <coughs> Daniel didn't even know the meaning of Daniel. They know the secrets of the book of Revelation. They know every single detail. They know everything. Folks, there are many things I don't know. And there are many things in the book of Providence that I don't know. I don't know why a child is struck by leukemia. I don't know why a father is taken away. I don't know why murders happen. I don't know why people suffer economic uh, uh, reversals. I don't know why folk have to go through cancer. I don't know. I just don't know. But there's a little bit of light here. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Show me a godly person, and I will show you someone who has suffered. Show me someone who has fruit in their lives, and I will show you someone who has gone through some darkness and is going through some darkness. This is counterintuitive. There was in the United Kingdom a public intellectual when I was growing up. His name was Malcolm Muggeridge, quite a famous man. He was always in the tele television, public intellectual. And uh, he was considering this question. Why do bad things happen to good people? It's a perennial question. Why are there bad things in this world? <clears throat> Listen to what Malcolm Muggeridge says. Bear with me, because it's verse 2 stuff. He says, it's a mystery in a sense, but just imagine the opposite. Muggeridge says, suppose you eliminated suffering. What a dreadful place the world would be. I would almost rather eliminate happiness. Isn't that interesting? The world would be the ghastly place because everything that corrects the tendencies of this unspeakable little creature, man, to feel over-important and pleased with himself would disappear. He's bad enough now, but he would be absolutely intolerable if he never suffered. Growth through discipline. That's why we become more Christ-like. Because our ego, our selfishness, all these idols are taken away and we are pruned. And this is where faith comes in, that we need to have the faith to know that as the rose is pruned down to its bare stalk, so in the spring it will blossom and it will be beautiful. You are beautiful because you have suffered. I know some of you well enough to know some of your backstory. And I know that the pruning was painful, but God is wise. So remember what we're saying here. We noticed, didn't we, the true vine. We're noticing the gardening father, and he is producing Christ-likeness by number one, lifting us up, showing us the face of God. Number two, by pruning us. And number three, 
very solemnly, verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. You see it all around East Memphis, bags of rubbish, of twigs beside the road, waiting for the garbage people to take it away. These are branches that look as if they are part of the vine. They are nominal Christians, but they are not connected to the vine. They don't know Jesus. They go through the form and motion. They look the part. They look religious, but they're fruitless and thrown into the fire. They've got all the structure, but not the connection. And the key figure here is Judas, because that's the context here. Judas looked like he was in the vine, but he wasn't. That's a solemn call there for you and for me. Am I in that vine? So we've seen number one, the true vine. We've seen number two, the gardening father. Thirdly, and fairly briefly, we notice the abiding branch. The result of all this will be fruitfulness. There will be fruitfulness. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. I am the vine, you are the branches. Verse 6, verse 5, whoever abides in me will bear much fruit. Just very briefly, two things here. One is passive and one is active. This points us to a remarkable truth. Abide in me, and I in you. Verse 5 again, whoever abides in me and I in him. This is union with Christ. This is amazing. That as a believer, you are united to Christ. John Murray, the Scottish theologian, said this abiding in Christ was, quote, the central truth the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. The remarkable thing, his life becomes our life. We are indissolubly linked to Jesus. When a couple get married, they enter a church as two single people. They, they, they leave as one flesh. The property of each individual becomes the property of one, of, of them together. All that they have is given to each other. The property of the individual becomes the property of both. They become one. That's true with Christ. All that is Christ is ours. And he has all things. Young people talk differently to old people. And as I am beginning to move from young into old. I'm not quite there yet. I'm not ready for that. My hair's not really white. It's dyed white. As I move into that, you ask young folk, how are you today? And they say, I'm good, thanks. Now, I'm a Scottish Calvinist. And when they say, I'm good, thanks, there's a little bubble appears above my head thing. no, you're not. You're a totally depraved sinner. From the top of your head to the tip of your toe, you're not good. You're bad. 
good. And so, young folks, I'm good. I usually say I'm well, and I express my, my health. Some of you will be terrified to speak to me after the service. <laughs> but you know, there's a sentence which I am totally wrong. Because if you're in Christ, I say to you, how are you today? And you say, I'm good. And it's true. Because you're united to Christ. This is what the Reformation was all about. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. We're good. And when we revel in the gospel, that's the fruit that we have. The abiding branch is, is, is in Christ. And so there's that passive thing where we abide in Christ. Then finally, and very brief, briefly, there's an active thing. Abide in me, and I will abide in you. Active and passive. J.C. Ryle speaks about abiding in him as a tireless pursuit of God. You see, we, we can overemphasize things. As we talk about grace, how many services and sermons have you heard about the, the wrongness of pulling yourself up by your moral bootstraps? It's a kind of standard phrase in sermons these days. And of course, that, that's bad. That's moralism. And then we're against moralism. It's not the gospel. However, uh, there are active things that we must do. We must abide in him. J.C. Ryle says, with this I close, abide in me, cling to me, stick fast to me, live a life of close, intimate communion with me, Roll every burden on me. Cast your whole weight on me. Never let go your hold of me for a moment. Because as we hold on to him, his grip of us is infinitely stronger. Yes, this is the end of the sermon. But it's not the end. It's just the beginning. As you abide in him and, beloved, bear much fruit. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Speak to us through it. In you we live, move, and have our dwelling. Thank you that you are the vine. Amen. We respond to the Word of God. Hymn of response, hymn number 529, only singing the first three stanzas, Love Divine or Love's Excelling. Mm -hmm. 